Dear Christian friends, I would imagine that most of us here this morning over the course of our lifetimes have worked enough different jobs to recognize the difference between having a good boss and maybe kind of a a crummy boss. And it does make a, a big difference depending on how well you know that boss. Again, assuming that that you don't just know his name or her name or, or, or a picture that, that makes you familiar, but you actually know your boss, their, their characteristics, the personalities, the way that they treat the employees, the, the affection or maybe not that they have for the company that they are serving. All of those impact how you are going to work, aren't you? So that maybe you've even experienced that you can work for a great boss in a crummy job And a great boss makes that crummy job not so crummy. On the flip side, you can work your dream job, and yet working your dream job for a crummy boss takes a little bit of magic out of that job, doesn't it? Why is it it this way? Well, because knowing the boss, or how well you know him, is going to directly impact how you feel toward him or her. And how you feel toward him or her is going to impact how hard you work for him or her. So again, the better you know the boss and and the more uh, affection you have or appreciation you have for that boss, that translates or turns into, it shapes how you feel about the boss, which in turn is going to impact the quality and the quantity of work that you are willing to do for that boss. As a direct correlation, doesn't it? So it matters how well you know the boss. Do you see any parallels, any similarities between the the workplace relationship with a boss and our relationship, one's relationship with the Savior? There are some similarities, aren't there? How well you know that boss, how well you know the Lord is going to impact how you love Him, how you live for Him. Now, of course, as all analogies do, this one limps because the Lord is not our boss. Jesus is is not the boss that, that expects the work of us. Rather, He's the one that first did all the work for us, right? And actually, that might might be even more impetus, even more reason for that relationship with God to have greater impact than even our relationships with our boss. So as we consider the importance of how well we know the Lord, there is a connection. How well we know Him impacts how we feel about Him and how we in turn are going to live for Him. So we shouldn't perhaps be so surprised by somebody that seems to live for self if they don't have a great relationship with the Lord, if they don't know Him very well. Or if their understanding of the Lord is like that of a boss, a a taskmaster, somebody that that makes demands, somebody that has high expectations that are, are virtually impossible to meet. Why would that person who has that impression of the Lord be inclined to live for and serve the Lord. It matters, doesn't it, how well you, you know the Lord. And so this, this morning we begin a, a series that focuses on the relationship between knowing the Lord and loving Him and living for Him. And it's imperative that we start out first with how well we know the Lord. 
And so this morning, we focus on knowing the Lord as the Lamb, next Sunday the light, and the Sunday after that, Lord. And only after we focus on that, then does our knowledge of the Lord fill us up with love for Him, which then in turn, the final three weeks of the series focuses on how we live for the Lord. So how well do you, do you know the Lord? Is your knowledge of the Lord kind of like that um, cursory knowledge, that familiarity that you have with your, your mail carrier, a polite nod and, and a wave as you see, but you don't know them beyond that? Or is your relationship like that of your dearest and, and, and closest friend or, or even a spouse? Or is your relationship status with the Lord, is it on the level of if he were to text you, he'd get a response right back? Or is it the level that you'd be okay ghosting him? Your relationship with the Lord matters. This was just reiterated this, this past week in our One Thing Matters class. Uh, one of the, the questions that I started out the lesson on worship was, how would you convince somebody today, a Christian in particular today, of the value of doing what we're doing right now? Why go to church in a day and age where the value of that is lessened and, and not appreciated nearly as much? Convince somebody else that coming to church on Sunday morning, gathering with the saints is important. And, and this person rightly said, well, I, I go there not, not because I, I have to or because it's some requirement to get into heaven, but because it's a relationship that I have with the Lord. Isn't that accurate? Your relationship with the Lord is going to fuel how much time you want to spend. Just like every other relationship, really, in your life. I don't imagine that, that you have real deep connections to people that you don't see or communicate, or spend much time with. On the contrary, those relationships that mean the most to you are the ones that you are most invested in, and the ones that are people that you spend the most time with, and you know the best. So, recognize this morning that there is a direct correlation between how well you know the Lord and how you are to live. And really, this, this matters. This, this makes all the difference, doesn't it? At the end of the day, because your quality of life, the, the purpose, the meaning of your life is going to tie down to how well you know the Lord. So, this morning, let's focus particularly on that picture of the Lord that has been revealed to us uh, through the, the words of John the Baptist that are recorded for us in the gospel this morning. And, and if you, as you hear these words, if, if you kind of struggle to relate to this picture of the lamb, guess what? You, you aren't alone. Even John the Baptist himself acknowledged that it had to be revealed to him. Listen again in our reading from this morning, uh, John chapter 1, picking it up with verse 31. John shares, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. So it had to be revealed, it had to be made known to John who Jesus actually was when he spoke those words in verse 29, look 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And with those words, words that there was not confusion, it was rather a revelation. Because people knew exactly who the Lamb of God was. Let's see how well we know the Lamb of God as we reflect particularly on those words of John. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First of all, Lamb. That probably isn't a picture that connects well with many of us today outside of the context of church. We come across the word lamb in, in the hymns that we sing, right? We come across the word lamb in scripture, but what does it really mean? What is the significance behind it? Why, why that picture of all the others that God could have chosen? Rest assured, again, when John spoke those words, it meant something to the people of his day because that term, the word lamb, meant something to God's people throughout history. And if you're not all that familiar with it, okay, let's, re, let's review it. Perhaps the most familiar context of this lamb is the Passover in the Old Testament. That special ritual which God called his people to celebrate on an annual basis to remind them of how he had delivered them from Egypt, but not only to serve that purpose, also to foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice that the lamb, the son of God, Jesus, would make for his people. And so God's people took what? a lamb, and they sacrificed that lamb. And they ate their Passover meal, and then they took the blood of that lamb and they painted it over the doorpost so that they would remember that by the slain blood of the lamb comes deliverance. A very impactful picture, for sure. But it wasn't the only one in the Old Testament. Every morning and every night, the priest, whether at the tabernacle as God's people were meandering through the wilderness, through the desert, or in the temple when it had been established, the priest would take, guess what? A lamb and make a morning and an evening sacrifice. That picture of the lamb was always present, always before God's people, always foreshadowing the perfect lamb who would come. And how can, you, how can you not call to mind the chillingly accurate words of Isaiah 53 describing our Savior who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter? And so when we see this, this picture, realize how rich this term is, the lamb of God. The lamb means sacrifice. Lamb means blood being spilled. Lamb means payment for sin. Lamb means chosen one, Messiah. Lamb has significance. But not just any lamb. As John pointed out, this was the lamb of God. The Lamb of God. If you, if you have a, a plumbing problem in your house, perhaps in the past you've had an electrician come by that, that shares that he has a little knowledge of plumbing, but if you have a significant problem, who are you inclined to contact to look at that plumbing issue? The electrician who knows a little bit about plumbing or the plumber who has owned his own business for several decades? Call me crazy, but I'm guessing you're going to go with the plumber, right? He knows what he's doing. This lamb of God means that this lamb alone 
could serve the purpose that God demanded. He came from God. He was sent from God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God sent his son. That God, the one who sent his son, that's the God who demands righteousness and perfection and holiness. So wouldn't you want the one who demands such things to be the one who offers them to you? This Lamb of God was the Lamb from God, given by God. And God alone is perfect, is pure, is holy, is righteous. He is the source of all of those things. So if we are to meet that standard, that expectation, that requirement of God to be holy and to be perfect, then it has to come from God. And so only this Lamb of God could fit the bill and serve that purpose. Ah, but, but John wasn't done yet. Not just the Lamb of God, but notice what this Lamb would come to do. The Lamb of God who takes away sin. Pause for a moment. Consider that sin. You know the one I'm talking about. It's that sin that you default to. It's that sin that maybe you have struggled with for years. Maybe it's a memory of, of that sin that you can't shake. It's that sin that you find yourself drawn to, loving, desiring. It's the sin that, that troubles your conscience, even perhaps to the degree of wondering if this is going to be the sin that is your undoing. You can show up in church, you can profess your faith, and yet you stumble and you trip on that sin again and again, and you wonder if on that last day when God calls you to account, if, if he is going to blindside you by telling you, oh, sorry, you see, faith also means not sinning like you do in that way that you love and desire more than me. Now, consider that sin and the Lamb of God who takes away that sin. Not just the, the sins that we diminish, make light of, brush over, don't think too much of at all without a second guess. We, we don't even give them another thought, but that sin, the sin that troubles you, the sin that chases you around and, and, and will not give your guilty conscience any relief. The Lamb of God has taken away that sin. And friends, do not lose sight of the tense of the verb that John the Baptist uses here. Do you notice that it's a, a present tense that, that John didn't say about Jesus, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin, the Lamb of God who took away the, the, the sin, but the Lamb of God who takes away sin. The sin that you're going to commit tomorrow, he will take away. The sin that you'll commit the next day, that same sin that you struggle with, that, that challenges you, that sin has been taken away and he will take it away again and again always taking it away. And if the Lamb of God has taken away that sin from your record, then you can let go of it too. Ah, but, but John the Baptist isn't done. He doesn't even stop there. He goes on to say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Your sin, yes. My sin, yes. 
But your neighbors sin, and yes, even your worst enemies sin. The world has it right, but for the wrong reason. The world can even acknowledge in some semblance of of spirituality that God is love. They have that right, but they have the wrong reason for it. Their idea of God's love is tolerance, allowance, indifference toward this sin or that sin, that he loves everybody so much that he just looks away no matter how you live, what lifestyle you choose, no matter what sin you struggle with, it doesn't matter. God is love. They're right, God is love. But they could not be more wrong about the reason behind that love. God's love is is not reflected in his tolerance. See, he did one better. It's reflected in the fact that he took away that sin. God's love isn't reflected in his allowance of sin. He did one better. He took away that sin. It's not reflected in his indifference towards sin. How could anybody look at the the bloodied Savior suspended on the cross and conclude that God was indifferent about sin? He did one better than being indifferent toward it. He took it away. The whole world's sin. Your sin, my sin, taken away taken away. Taken away. Brothers and sisters in Christ, can you recall ever having a boss that did anything so amazing? Of course not. Only the Lamb of God could do that. Only the Lamb of God has done that. Only the Lamb of God will continue to do that. So, believe me when I tell you, the better that you know that Lamb of God, the more you will love Him. Amen.